BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. When it comes to buying your first home, everyone has questions. Can we even afford to buy a house right now? Well, I need to negotiate. How do I even negotiate? Luckily, a REMAX agent has answers. Hey, Brian, those are really good questions. They are? Thanks. It's my first time buying. I work with first-time buyers all the time. I got you. REMAX agents have more experience than other real estate agents. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Each office independently owned and operated. Welcome to Cop Father. I am Craig Lamel, along with my good buddy, Danish Cornelius. Today's podcast is going to be about some very sad news I've learned in the last few days. The passing of a very good friend of mine, my ex-partner down at 51 Division, uh, Bruce Ward. I got a call from one of my other partners at the time, Al Olson. Let me know that Bruce had passed away. It's hit a lot of us quite hard. Bruce was a legend at 51. We're going to get into it talk about some uh, great memories I've had with Bruce. And in fact, Dennis and I are in the middle of putting together a documentary about 51 called The Notorious 51. And we had a great opportunity to interview Bruce for that. You know, back in the late 70s and 80s and 90s at 51, it was a real badge of honor to have a nickname. I think just about everybody had a nickname. I was given bro. And Bruce's was Warpo. I had never met such a professional police officer in my life, both uniform and undercover, plainclothes work. We worked on many details together. And I'm so happy Dennis is with me today to talk about Bruce. You had a great opportunity with me to interview Bruce for the documentary. Just a really outstanding guy, both on and off the job. Yeah, legend is is a fitting word for that era and that time. And uh, although... You know, you guys were in it there in the late 70s, early 80s, like the police still are. But he was a chameleon. You know, this was firsthand from you, but always secondhand until, I guess, what? This has been a work in progress for the last uh, four or five years. I sat with him for hours. And, you know, you can tell if someone's lying. He wasn't a a spy. He was a beat cop. Yeah, he's one of the best storytellers. Yeah, because it's honest and almost the innocence was still with him even while he was he was battling cancer yeah. and on and off when he agreed to share with us, you know, th- things like being stabbed a- an inch from dying in undercover drug deals gone wrong. Like he did it all. But the one thing that stuck with me now, and I think about him today, and my condolences to you and all the guys like Al and all of you is he says on camera, he goes, you know, he was a suburban kid in the, in the grew up in the sixties and seventies. He goes, well, I wasn't used to this going down to 51. And he goes, well, like, like what the, and he, you could tell his eyes. He still remembers the shock of the violence, the continual violence, the fear, the constant 
24 hours a day of running after stuff, like just trying to keep up. And he stuck it out. He stuck it out at 51. Yeah, Bruce joined Toronto Police Service in 1976. I had an opportunity to work as partners with Bruce, both on the foot patrol and plainclothes major crime. And before myself and uh, Al Olson went up to the uh, union, Al was working with us also. And in uniform or in plain clothes, our job was at the time, there was an epidemic of the crack coming out, crack cocaine. It was just insane. And when it hit us, it hit us hard. And Bruce always had this enthusiasm. And you got to remember back then, we were rewarded with as many arrests as we could make. And the truth of the matter, in 51 back then, it was like shooting fish in a barrel. I mean, whether it was Regent Park, St. Jamestown, Cabbage Town, Moss Park, Crombie Park, it was everywhere. It was a division that was three miles by a mile. And any given time, we'd have 75 or 80 crack houses on the go, 24-7. We were at the time making more arrests than the drug squad in uniform and in plain clothes. We'd work all night. We'd go to court every morning. And his energy was the one that kept us going. He kept saying, let's just keep doing it. We got to do it for the community. We got to do it for the city. We were the only line of defense. People were coming from all over the province to buy their drugs in 51. It was it was Crack Alley. The nickname was Crack Alley at the time. But Bruce's effort, sometimes we'd be exhausted and he just wanted to keep, let's just keep doing it for the, all the right reasons. Complete professional at all times. Uh, the one day Al and I took off, we were involved in something else. Uh, 19, November 1993, Bruce was making a drug buy in plain clothes and it didn't go well and he got stabbed in the back. He was lucky. He, he, I don't think he was supposed to make it, but his bravery and his effort to survive that was incredible. We ended up catching the guy that did it. At the time, there was a trial and for attempt murder and he got the longest conviction ever. That wasn't just attempt murder on a cop. It was just the attempt murder. And the guy went away. And I remember at the time, uh, I was very close to Bruce and his family. And my kids and his kids played together. We went birthday parties together. So it was not just on the job, it was off. And at the time, we were all close, all of us down there. After Bruce got stabbed, it took him years to recover from it. Uh, he was in a lot of pain, but he always wanted to get back to work. He's probably one of the most bravest persons I've ever met. I don't think he wanted to make it look like the system beat him. He was doing his job. He was doing his job when he got stabbed because the brass, at the time the politicians, wanted us to give 110%, try to put an end or try to get control of the situation with crack cocaine. Incredible amount of hours and effort. And Bruce was kind of the leader on that. He was, he was our guy that kept, you know, when we were down and, exhausted. He was the one that kept saying, let's go, let's go get another one. We called it getting a body, making an arrest. We're number one. And it wasn't that hard because it was such a problem down there, but the effort was incredible. And down there, if you're a drug dealer, you're a drug dealer for your own habit. It was a junk, you're a junkie drug dealer. Bruce always took them to the side and said, listen, we can help you. We can get you out of this if you want. There's another side to life other than this. And he would always offer it up. There were hundreds and not thousands of people we arrested for. And it was just crack. That's all we did on the foot patrol. 
with orders from the top. And we did it. And not just myself and Warpo and Al Olson, but it was all, all the other officers down there. That's all we were dealing with at the time. Bruce always had respect from the judges, from the Crown. But I really noticed he had respect from the defense lawyers. Bruce Ward gave evidence. He was telling the truth. There's no doubt about it. And vast majority of the time, we would get a conviction. And he, he even got respect from the bad guys, and he got respect from the lawyers. I was always very impressed with because, you know, not just the system we're at war with down there, but even the lawyers and all that, but they never said a bad word about Bruce because he was so honest. Time went on and Bruce retired a few years ago and then his next battle, his brave battle was with cancer. Talked to him a lot. He was beating it. He never got down and he always had this incredible, unbelievable sense of humor from the first time I met him to the last time I talked to him. In his retirement, he was always notifying the old gang about who was sick or who had passed away, and he was keeping us informed, and he was kind of the go-to person for that. This is a hard one. This is why I wanted to talk about on the podcast, and I'm glad you're with me, Dennis, because we had a good time with him when we were interviewing him, and we had a lot of laughs during the interview. It was. He was, uh, even in this solemn day for, for the Ward family and, and for you and, and the guys down there, I was at his retirement surrounded by hundreds of cops yeah if you remember i took you there then you called me about two hours later said come in you got to meet them this is like a, over 10 12 years ago yeah, but a couple, 10 years he, ago 10 years ago if you remember the the courage this guy had with what he was dealing with the physical things he had to do to leave his apartment and how long he could sit if you remember he was literally not doing great with the cancer and he gave it all in a very, oh, I was very honest. I mean, look, it's going to take us some time to figure out how that, those great old legendary stories fit into the marketplace and the current state of affairs. But the guy was so honest and almost not naive, but really innocent and the humor. He was a very funny guy. It was so simple to him, like, just do the right thing. He was righteous without being pompous. Yeah. And if I, if I can say something to you, because I know the blue line and this and that, and you guys were a wolf pack and all that, but he was very honest, and he was recounting to me a story of, I guess, a former 51 cop where he didn't really go after. He was just making a comment, look, we're in the middle of a war zone here, and, like, who's really going to believe that a six foot five, 280 pound, you know, guy is actually dealing drugs in the middle of Regent Park. Come on. Oh, like yeah. he was, he was insightful, man. He knew what was going on and he was soldiering on all the way till the end. God rest his soul. But I feel privileged that I was at the retirement and that I had th those hours to document with him. Yeah, he always had a, a positive outlook on his professional and personal life. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. 
When it comes to buying your first home, everyone has questions. Can we even afford to buy a house right now? Well, I need to negotiate. How do I even negotiate? Luckily, a REMAX agent has answers. Hey, Brian, those are really good questions. They are? Thanks. It's my first time buying. I work with first-time buyers all the time. I got you. REMAX agents have more experience than other real estate agents. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Each office independently owned and operated. And it rubbed off on all of us. There's no doubt about it because there's many times when I was even working at 51, I was given up. I thought, well, you know, what are we doing here? But he always wanted to go. He said, yeah, we're in a war. We've been instructed. We've been ordered to go and, and fight this war. And it was at the time. The other thing was, you know, I wanted to make sure that everybody knows that he was very proud of 51. He was, you know, we're complaining. It was overworked a lot, but he loved working down there. And he especially loved working with the people, the men and women of the, of the division. He always knew, and that was our rule, that if the, if the shit hit the fan, we had backup. We had people there. And he was one that would lead the charge if one of the other coppers needed help. And he was instrumental on that. We were a wolf pack. We we're in this together. I mean, there was nobody else at the time to help us if the shit hit the fan. That was the only rule. There was no rule one, two, or three. That was the only rule over there. And, you know, even at the point we started... I don't know why they did this. I think they did it to try to control some of us, whether it was myself, Warp, or else. And they started giving us new recruits. So what we would do to make sure they understood the way of our world that they just entered, they, some of these people weren't even shaving yet, okay? So they'd show up in the nice, bright uniform. We'd do our parade. We'd say, okay, sergeant leaves. Okay, you three guys, go downstairs and put your running shoes on. Take your police boots off and put your running shoes on because we're going to have three or four foot pursuits tonight and we're not chasing them. You're chasing them. We will follow you, but they're going to be taken off on us. And so these recruits were like petrified of what was about to happen. And they all went down, put their running shoes on, dark uniform with these white runners, and within five minutes of getting out there, we were chasing, you know, the, the bandits all over the place. And that way we knew they were going to be part of the wolf pack right off the bat. Most of those people are very high-ranking people now in police services all over the province yeah. and very accomplished officers. Bruce was a great training officer, coach officer, as they talk, because of the amount of respect he had out there. I, w I just wanted to talk about him today because he is one of the legends. You had to work a day with Bruce, and you would have been a better police officer for it. You know, when he retired, the Toronto Sun drove around with him for the day. They did a huge article about him. He never wanted to get promoted. He was a detective constable. He never wanted to be a sergeant. He was going to miss the action. And to the day he retired, he was making arrests. He had 37 years on the job. He was working plain clothes, and he was still making arrests. Very impressive, very unique. The honesty of this man and the professionalism of being in a job that was really tough. I mean, the rules were being changed every day on us. He always coped with it. I think he knew as long as we were working as a team, I looked at it this way, we we're going to survive this together. You know, any moment there was somebody wanted for a homicide or for a home invasion or a robbery, those homicide squads and holdup squads would come to 51 to go to Bruce first because he had this photographic memory. He would remember the name, date of birth. 
something we called an MTP number that once you're arrested, you're given a number for our filing system, nothing else. And he rem- he memorized it all. So he was responsible for catching a lot of people wanted for homicides. And homicide squad would come and say, listen, this is the guy we're looking for. Here's his description. And Warpo would say, that's John Smith, and he lives over here. It was incredible, uh, his his memory. You know, just on to touch on that, because I don't, like I said, you're the one that spent many decades with them during the, the cop years and even post. Uh, but this is what has stayed with me, and this is, I believe, a, a touch from a civilian point of view mm-hmm. as someone that spent 16, 17 years with you on projects and work and everything. Did he ever sound jaded did he ever whine did he nothing it was this code that he had that he it never got him jaded that's why he was training the younger guys because he never lost that battle of spirit or psyche he stayed positive and he soldiered on all the way till yesterday till two days ago right yeah he didn't get jaded in a place like that where you've told me that a lot of guys got jaded they felt neglected withdrawn they were dumped on the whole city because the crack thing that you discussed was an avalanche. Yeah. You guys could have made a hundred arrests a day. It wasn't gonna. You guys, it was it was Fort Apache. So that's what I'd like to on my commentary about the man, about Bruce Ward. I was really really moved by his character and the guy. What didn't he didn't suck out? He never said you know. He did might have said we deserved better. They left it all on us, on one division, on three, four platoons. But his attitude was very stoic in in, in the, the true meaning of stoic. Soldier on. You just do the thing. He was. And then during our time, both on and off the job, and talked about how proud he was of his children, David and Lindsay, always talked about how they turned out. He was so proud of them. He was a family man. He was an incredible father. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. You know, Dennis, the other thing I remember about Warpo is he had he had a, a man cave before there were man caves, his basement, because he was a musician. He was a singer. He, he was in a band, a rock band. He loved Pink Floyd. And we used to go down in his basement and listen to tunes. He'd bring out the guitar. He was very, he was a really good, he was a singer and he was in all these rock bands over the years. And we would do it just to break from all the negativity around us. And I remember being in his basement at his house and he was, it was all set up with his instruments. He's singing and we'd have some of the people over 51. It was just a break, but we had many parties we would rent halls and he'd get up and he was the band leader. He was up there playing rock and roll and incredibly talented when it came to things off the job, like, like a musician. That's crazy. Fantastic. Yeah. It's so easy to say he was, my Warpo was one of a kind. 
So I appreciate this, buddy. I just thought we should talk about him. So many people should have known about this guy. He did it for the betterment of a city. He has so much pride in trying to make a very wrong situation a more positive situation. Dennis and I spent many hours with Bruce interviewing him about the old days and all that. And uh, I want to leave you with some words of Bruce that we did one of our interviews. It says it all about the guy. And thanks for listening. Thanks, Dennis. Thank you, and uh, God rest his soul. I'm with you, bro. Thank you. Personally, my nickname was Warpo, and I got that from when I was working uh, plain clothes back in uh, the 80s, and we were doing a uh, punk rock uh, after-hours club. And my partner and I, who happened to be a female, we dressed as punk rockers and went... Uh, went into this club for three nights that was operating like way out of the liquor license. They, well, they didn't have a liquor license. They were like opening, a booze can. Yeah, booze can. They were opening at one in the morning. It was down uh, behind the Humane Society on uh, River Street. And uh, you had to walk down this dirty little laneway. And we got in there for three days and, uh, you know, we're in there buying liquor and drinking it. And the place would jam up with punk rockers that I thought... We looked up just the way we were dressed. Some of the people that are coming in with blue mohawks and, and whatnot. Uh, the actual name of the club was Barf Puppy. And the, uh, you know, it was no license or anything. It was just known as that. And the band that played in there was called Barf Puppy. But um, that night, I, or one of those nights, I got nicknamed that uh, Warpo for being warped to be able to... Uh, act like that and other uh, plank close things that I've done I guess built up to it. And this guy was getting, you know, give me my money, give me my money. And he's giving me the cocaine so I've got the money in my hand set up, grab him and told him that he was under arrest. And we'd start fighting in the back of the cab and uh, the door was still open. We actually rolled out of the cab and fighting each other. And to me, it, you know, it was a fair fight that uh, we were fighting and uh, got to the point where I pulled his jacket over his head and I was, you know, like in a, a hockey game when he pull somebody's sweater over to, you know, disorient them or whatever. And, uh, you know, I thought I had a good grab on him and, and this is it, this will be the end of the fight, the backup's got to be here. And all of a sudden I, I felt uh, uh, something hit me in the, the back and I thought it was just him punching me really hard. And then I had light jeans on and I looked down my left leg was just like going red. And I realized that he'd stabbed me in the back with, uh, turned out to be a six inch uh, combat uh, style knife. And, you know, I let go of him. I think I still had his jacket, uh, yeah, I had his jacket. Uh, he wiggled out of it. And I could see him running. And I actually thought of pulling out my gun. And, uh, you know, he's, he still had the knife in his head as I saw him running away. And I thought, you know, I looked and that he'd hit me in the head also when we were inside of the cabin. I had a cut above the eye. And, you know, I wasn't going to take a shot at him, uh, even though, you know, he's running towards where my backup was going to be, or one of the backup units. I didn't want to take a shot because there was people coming out of a grocery store there. And, and uh, then I saw a police car actually hit him. An unmarked police car actually uh, hit him. They made the arrest, and uh, I spent... Uh, I was rushed to St. Mike's Hospital and taken care of there, and I was off for a couple of months and uh, went back to 
to the task force and uh, just really didn't have it in me anymore to, to go and do the drug buying. And uh, so you ended up working uh, different things, the fraud unit and, and you know, special different units, but away from the drugs for, for quite a while and until I got back into it. Uh, and once I got back into it, it was like, just needed that, that one bone to get me back into it and I was back uh, full force out there buying drugs and, and whatever I had to do. When I was in uh, working in the major crime unit uh, buying drugs, and this is just, got probably 10 years ago, I went with the detective that uh, was in charge of the unit. We went out to buy some drugs down at Queen and Sherburne. And we met this gentleman that told us to come into this laneway at Britain and George Street. We go on the laneway, it's about seven o'clock at night, just sun going down. And he climbs up this fire escape. And I don't like heights, but I've never told the detective this. You just don't mention to people, oh, by the way, I'm afraid of heights. And we go up this rickety old fire escape stairs. And the thing is like moving and we've got to go up two flights. And I'm thinking, if we end up arresting this guy fighting on this stair, stairs, I'm going to be no good. And Neil's in, the, my partner's in front of me, I'm behind him, and it's like, please don't fight with this guy, please don't. I'm shaking just being up, up this height, two, two flights on. The worst thing in my life is a fire, one of those old rippy fire escapes you see through the stairs. And we bought some cocaine off him, and I'm thinking, let's not arrest him here, let's like go back down to the ground and tell him he's under arrest. And he must have read my thoughts because we went down. And on the way down, when we got to the bottom, he said, we'll wait for him to come down. And I thought, thank God. So he stood at one end of the laneway, and I stood at the other end of the laneway. And this prostitute comes up to me and asks me if I'm looking or if, if, if I've got. I said, I just bought some. She goes, I'll give you a blowjob if you let me smoke some. I'm like, well, maybe in a minute. I've got to wait because my buddy's coming. So she's standing there with me. All of a sudden, the, the dealer comes walking out. My partner's right behind him. We tackle him, and I pull my handcuffs out of the back, and I'm handcuffing the guy. And this prostitute standing there, she said, so are we going to do this or what? Killed in the room. There was some smart ones down there. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at discounttire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire.